Hi, I'm Margie Nomura, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I hope you're all well and that you've had a lovely week. If you haven't yet left a five-star rating on iTunes, now is your moment, and your good deed for the week could be recommending desert island dishes to your friends and colleagues. I love bringing it to you every week and your reviews really do make the world of difference. So thank you. Having talked about it for a while now, I've been beavering away on my newsletter, so you won't want to miss it. (laughs) Head to desertislanddishes.co and you can sign up there. Come and join the gang. And I promise to try and make something that you actually look forward to getting in your inbox, however sporadically. So I actually recorded today's episode with Jason way back before Christmas, very unlike me to record that far ahead, but it was amazing to be able to sit down with a chef like Jason, and I hope you enjoy. Without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Jason Atherton. Jason started cooking at a very young age in the seaside hotel run by his family, At 16, he ran away to London and got a job at a Michelin-starred restaurant, all while living in a youth hostel. After years of working under esteemed chefs such as Pierre Kaufman, Nicola Dennis, Marco Pierre White and Gordon Ramsay, he began building his own global restaurant empire just seven years ago. First in London with the award-winning Pollen Street Social and now in Hong Kong, Shanghai, the Philippines, Dubai, Sydney and New York. He has 17 restaurants so far and counting. He has been described as a world-class culinary alchemist and Marco Pierre White is on the record having said of Jason, Jason is a realist, not a fantasist, and he has turned his dreams into reality. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you about that Marco Pierre White quote about turning your dreams into reality, because reality right now is, I think, quite a lot bigger than you ever could have dreamed. Is that right? Because I read that you dreamt of being a chef and maybe having one restaurant, but possibly not the empire you have today. No, no. I mean, I mean, I I dreamt of just being a a really good head chef and, and being able to cook really nice food. And um, providing for my family—that was that was the dream, really. Dream, and I think it's important to dream big, but I think it's important also to be a realist. I think it's important to to understand um, not limitations because limitations shouldn't shouldn't hold anybody back, but it should be, you know, you you need to make sure that everything you try to strive to achieve, once you've achieved it, then you can continue. It gives you the strength to continue to 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 grow bigger. Yeah, because if the dream's so big that you it's it's going to take you 20 30 40 years you can sort of get disheartened you know whereas i think if you set yourself my goals were small but that was i always knew that they were going to grow so i sort of like set myself a goal to go and work for market pierre white to go and work for pierre kaufman to go and work uh, for nicola dennis and once i achieved that okay now to be a good sous chef and then i went to work for stephen terry as a sous chef and so forth and so forth and that's they were my goals and my dreams you know and they were small dreams but they once they got packaged into one dream, it became one big dream, what then enabled me to do what I do today. Oh, that's amazing. 
I believe your family ran a B&B in Skegness and you got involved in food from a really early age. So let's dive straight into the first Desert Island dish. Yep. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. I think the dish, what I would always, um, mum on a Friday uh, for for the Sorrento guest house, she would do a prawn cocktail, right? Ooh. And it was quite a glamorous thing in the, yeah. in the 70s <laughs> and, and the early 80s. That we, Me and my sister used to have, they were all made up in these little like coops. And then we'd have to lay them out. Me and my sister used to get a plate and nick one prawn off each guest. <laughs> and then we'd go and eat, eat, we'd go and hide away somewhere and go and eat them. And it was, uh, uh, that was the dish that always reminded me of, of what mum used to cook for the, for the guests and stuff. That's a good one. You say you fell in love with food at the age of about 10. What was it about cooking that you loved so much? Because you kind of decided way back then that that was what you wanted to do, didn't you? I just liked, uh, I liked the fact that you could create stuff. I was not, I was never an academic. School wasn't my thing, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I didn't, you know, I had no desire. If someone had gave me a free university pass to Oxford, I wouldn't have took it, taken it. Do you okay. Know? It wasn't, it was just wasn't my thing. I liked being around people. I liked creating stuff, building stuff, being good at sports, having something where I could physically drive myself to achieve it rather than sitting down and mentally achieving it. And that was just, I don't know why, that was just always my thing. You know, I, I whatever I put my mind to, whether it was fishing, whether it was athletics, whether it was, I didn't stop till I was good at it, you know, and, and um, the same is, is that today, you know, whether it's going to the gym, whether it's boxing, whether it's uh, whatever I do, golf or whatever, I, I have to strive to be good at it. You know? Okay. <laughs> and, and cooking was no different, you know. I think that's really interesting because the food landscape and the sort of role that chefs play today, it wasn't the case back then. So when you decided to be a chef, it was purely for the love of cooking. It wasn't for sort of any of these trappings that have come today. No, no, absolutely. And, and I think that's, you know, that's absolutely crucial that you, when you're engrossed in something, if you want to be an amazing golfer because you want to be, you know, Tiger Woods, then the realization of that is practically numb, right, June? But if you want to be good at golf because you love the game and then off the back of that become successful, a professional golfer, make money, have a great life, then amazing, right? And that's that's what you have to take in consideration. So when people are amazing, I, I like to read nothing more than a chef who's had success because of his love of food, right? And that's, even today, I get excited when I'm in the middle of this new BBC show at the moment where yeah. we're traveling all around Europe. And, you know, I've I found two brand new sherry providers down in Cadiz where I'm desperate to get them on the list because they're so sensational. We was in uh, another uh, area of uh, um another area of Spain where we found some uh, incredible produce and now we're searching those those producers out because it's that love of food you know yeah, it's, it's absolutely yeah let's talk about the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook first dish I learned to cook probably was steak diane oh really so where you sweat down a shallot uh, onion shallot whatever add in the steak, flambe it with brandy, mix in a bit of mustard and some mushrooms. And that was sort of the dish. And I thought I was like the best thing since sliced yeah. bread when I mastered that dish. <laughs> How old do you think you were? I was 16. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the story goes that your interest in cooking was initially peaked when you decided to take home economics at school because you had a crush on a girl. And then your mum suggested that you go and try the army catering corps. Yep. But you hated it, didn't you? Yeah, because it was like, I was uh, just left school, so I was 16, um, bang on 16. I was 
you know, still like a man's man. Do you mean? Well, I thought I was. Yeah. Uh, obviously not. But I, uh, I, 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 you know, cooking back then in the in the the you know mid early eighties was not a was not a glamorous affair it is today, right? So you know, for 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 a northern dad to say his son cooks, like really, do you mean? It wasn't the thing. So so I thought, well, maybe I can combine the two. Maybe I'll become a chef in the army catering corps, and this would be my thing right i'm a soldier and i cook right makes sense but i just did not like the whole thing of being in the army and because it was all it was all about assault courses waking up at 6 a.m it was it's a little bit weird actually because the discipline what the army puts into you is the exact same discipline you have to have at michelin level to be an elite cook they both live side by side but i couldn't handle it in the army but i can handle it Mm. in the food world that's really interesting and it's really interesting and and i think because the love of food is so amazing that you put up with the discipline and you learn to live with it whereas in the army because i didn't really like you know and i appreciate i think that you know i think the british army is just an incredible thing right and i think i think i, w- I think i was just too young yeah the bottom line of it if i went in at 21 i, I would have probably cope with it but at 16 i was full of attitude had a chip on my shoulder uh, and the army are pretty good at knocking that out of people. Yeah. yeah. Also, no disrespect to the army, but sort of the food that you're cooking probably wasn't as inspiring as Mm-mm. it could have been. Yeah. After a bit of time working in the kitchen at a local hotel, you ended up kind of running away from home when your mum was on holiday. Mm-hmm. You were so desperate to get to London and to start cooking. Is that really how it went? And what did she think? You know, it was it was it was the case of like you know the cord had to be cut. Yeah. I you know we were we were close family. Mum was very protective of us, and London's a big, scary place. I think, you know, at that time, I think mum would only come once or twice to London, and, my, and same for my dad and, and uh, my brothers and sisters. And so this, you know, the whole notion of someone, one of the family living in London, this huge metropolis of seven, eight, nine million people, whatever it is, and living and working and being away from home so young, they were like, you know, it's just never going to happen. So I just thought, well, I've just got to do it, right? <gasps> That so rebellious. Mm-mm. No, I don't know. It's just like, it's just chasing the dream, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be done. The third Desert Island dish is the best dish you've ever eaten. Best dish I've ever eaten would probably be when me and my wife went to, there's a couple of restaurants actually. So when we went to France and they do a, it's like a homemade brioche, mm. which they soak in truffle juice and then sort of like pan fry it. And then... They put sea urchin on top and then they shave black truffle all over it to about that high and, and like par- aged parmesan cream. Oh, my goodness. It's probably one of the most delicious things I've ever put in my mouth. Yeah. It that. was so good that I just said, look, you need to make, I need to have another one. Yeah. <laughs> so straight after I had another one, it was so good. <laughs> oh, my God. That's the sign of a mm-hmm, really great mm-hmm, dish. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you, you basically worked your way around all the top restaurants in London and France and Spain, working with some of the best chefs in the world. At that point, were you just trying to sort of hone your craft as much as you could? Yeah, I think I think I was just in love with great restaurants. You know, I always knew that I always wanted to be around whether I'd ever own one or be in one or, or, or be part of one. I, you know, as in senior management was concerned, I had no idea. But I just felt the best chance to be was to be spending all my youth in those restaurants, whether it's Le Bourdil, El Bully, you know, Gordon Ramsay, uh, Marco Pierre White, it was it was important to me to be around that that society of food, if you like, and, yeah. and then eventually you get noticed, and eventually you get given your chance. And May's Grosvenor Square was my chance to prove that I could not just live amongst that world, but also compete. You know, 
Yeah. And did you just from the get go, did you love everything about working in a restaurant? Because I know obviously you're unbelievably passionate about food, but did the whole lifestyle of working in a restaurant yeah, just from the, from the very start? I love it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's uh, incredibly hard, you know, being at work till 10, 11, midnight, getting up at six and then getting back to work. It's incredibly difficult. But, but at the same time, once you love something and every now and again, just to give me, you know, when I'm, in one of the restaurants abroad or I'm, I'm fed up of being in a hotel or I'm fed up of picking my baggage up at another carousel or, or, or I'm busy running around London. And it's so busy. I'm, I'm, I'm fed up. I always say to myself, you could be in a job where you hate. I'm in a job where I love Yeah. every single day. I feel like I'm not going to work. I just feel like I exist. You know? oh, that's and that's, dream. um, yeah, it's the dream, right? Yeah. You know, forget about them. Any, any, financial rewards or, or, or luxury or anything like that. But to actually wake up and feel like you don't have a job, that that is the dream. Yeah, that really is. And you've worked with some of the best chefs in the world, which I wondered, which of them has taught you the most? Because I know obviously you spent the most time with Gordon Ramsay, but maybe earlier on, were there others that influenced you in sort of bigger ways? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, you know, 12 years with Gordon Ramsay was, uh, it was incredible. He's one of the best chefs in the world. Probably one of the top two chefs who's ever come out of Great Britain and and uh, held the more Michelin stars than any other British chef. And so obviously, you know, his legacy tells you everything. So so for me to be able to spend 12 years of my life learning from him, listen, I'm not stupid. I wouldn't spend 12 years yeah. of anybody if I didn't <laughs> think I could learn, right? Uh, I didn't stand there because, you know, I liked his fashion sense. I was there yeah. because... I was there because, you know, I, I, I was learning loads about the industry, right. And learned loads about how to run a restaurant, how to train people, how to, uh, uh, look after your customers. I mean, the guy was incredible. And with, uh, other chefs, I, I suppose the turning point for me creative wise was when I worked with Fran Adria and El Bully, mm. because it was the first time ever I'd worked in a kitchen where you wasn't just told to do something. You were, you were asked for creative input. Everybody from commie chef right up to head chef had a creative input on oh, how wow. the restaurant was run, which is how we run our restaurants today. Uh, and I think that changed everything for me because up until that point, when you worked for Marco, Nico, Pierre, it was like, right, okay, that's the dish. Just do it. You don't ask why. You don't know better. That's it. And, and, fa and fair enough because it worked, right? They're all freestyle chefs, so it all worked. But it was like, he was the first time I'd worked for freestyle chef. He said, well, actually, you know, you've worked in, you know, Jason, you've worked in these restaurants. How would you do it there? Can you make it for me? I want to taste it. He was very inquisitive, you know. Yeah. He, he wanted to know how food worked, you know, in other kitchens, not just his. And then he would say, okay, well, I really like that sauce. Maybe we might add a little bit of that acidity levels to our sauce and stuff like that. You know, he was very smart. Yeah, that's amazing. And as a young chef, that must have been so exciting. Mm -mm. Um, you may never have been asked this question before in an interview, mm -hmm. um, oh, but oh I'm going to ask you the fourth desert island dish. What is your favorite sandwich? Oh, that's easy. <laughs> two. Oh, actually, no, actually, there's two answers. There's a silly answer and, and, and there's the, the foodie answer. The foodie answer <laughs> is in Florence. We go once a year to Florence on our, normally on our summer holidays uh, for a couple of days, and then we go and explore other parts of Italy. And there's a tiny little sandwich shop, and it's called Inno. I N O. I shouldn't be telling people no. <laughs> it's like a bigger queue now. And it's the most incredible sandwich shop on the planet. This guy is a bit of a celebrity in, in, in Florence. He, he has his own cookbooks and all that type of stuff, but he just makes sandwiches. It's stone baked focaccia bread with rosemary oil. So, sourdough It's so delicious. He then wood fired oven. He cuts them open. The one I have is uh, gorgonzola with endure. Mm. Uh, puts it inside, sandwiches it together, puts it back in the wood fired oven until it all melts. You have it on a plate with a nice glass of uh, Chianti and it's just the best lunch ever. 
That's the foodie answer. The silly answer, <laughs> which is also just as delicious, but in other ways, two slices of mother pride bread, yes. slice of cheese, slice of ham, salt and vinegar crisps, brown sauce, squash it, <laughs> cut it in half and watch the football. Oh my God, that does sound <laughs> equally as good at the high and low of sandwich answers. Yeah, everything. I wouldn't put it in my cookbook. But <laughs> You've said that one of the best things that ever happened to you was taking 23 years to get your first restaurant. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's true, that that's sort of the cornerstone of your success is that you really took the time to learn your trade before, I guess, taking the plunge? I think, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm, I'm 47, I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but you know, as you get older, you know, maturity and, and hindsight is a, is, a, is a wonderful thing if you've got a chance to pass it down. And we live in such a fast world today, right? And we live in such a digital world. Everything is at a click of a button. Everything is, you don't now have to go to San Paolo to learn about, you know, Latin American food. You don't have to go to California to understand Chez Panisse. You don't have to travel to to Portugal to understand Portuguese food because you can just go on Instagram and see what everyone's doing. (laughs) But also there's a lot of fake stuff on Instagram. So you get a lot of people who post stuff and and stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's a really strange time we live in as far as food's concerned, because you've got to go and physically experience it as a cook. Do you mean? Yeah. You have to taste it. You have to watch the culture. You have to understand it. I mean, I'm taking these 10 young cooks and they're the luckiest people on the planet. I can tell you, they're going all around Europe. It's incredible destinations. This is in your new TV show. Yeah. And, and they're learning stuff. And I'm like, and I, I, even me, I have to stop myself and say, do you know how lucky you are? You have no idea. Yeah. And they're like, you know, oh, can we have our phones back? It's like, no, <laughs> you're, you're here to soak up the culture. This is what it's for. You know, it's to yeah. teach you. It's, it's to take us all back 30 years, how it used to be. This is how it used to be. No mm-hmm. phones. Do you mean, no, no, no. You're just here to soak up the culture, learn about food, learn about the passion. All these people, who, what, how much they put into their lives and how they, they, they farm, the, you know, they, they fish, how they, you know, they make wine, how they, you know, it's incredible. You know? Yeah. A little bit of me does worry that everybody wants everything now at a click of a button. And to be a great cook, you can't click a button, become a great cook, I'm afraid. No. You know, you've got to learn how to look after fish how to, to to look after it properly how to fill it how to to pluck birds how to look after game it's that's it's an art form in itself how to butcher an animal from top to bottom how to do pastry souffle make it i mean it takes time it yeah. just takes time and, and in addition to all the things you've just said is actually running a business is sort of a whole different skill set isn't it like it's one thing but if you take your time to be a great chef over over a period of time and you're smart and you watch out and you spend good t- amount of time in good kitchens and watch the front of the house watch how it works all this stuff is important to run in a successful restaurant. Mm. And when you're ready and you feel you're ready, you know, you, you, you know, I don't believe 21, 22 year old kids should be running restaurants. I don't believe in it. I, just, no. I don't believe in it. I don't want to be negative. I just don't think it's right. You know? Yeah. And you, you just got to be a sponge and just absorb as much as you can, haven't you? Mm-mm. We're on to the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. A dish I eat most often would probably be. My wife's a really good cook, actually. Oh, is she? Yeah. She cooks uh, amazing Filipino food. And her chicken pork adobo is just Ooh. the best. Yum. So it's like, it's uh, macerated overnight with uh, soy sauce, sugarcane vinegar, bay leaf, crushed black peppercorns. And then the next day, it's braised in the same liquor with stock. Once it's cooked, it's taken out. That's reduced. And it's glazed back over it. It's served with uh, garlic rice. It's just yummy. It's a traditional dish in the Philippines. It's passed down from my mum. It's great. Is that something that you do have quite a lot at oh, home? Oh, yeah, I love it. Does she do most of the cooking at home? A mm, little bit. 
Yeah. Yeah, 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 a little bit. She said I didn't marry you for your looks, so well, I have to cook. <laughs> was she intimidated the first time she had to cook for you? Uh, yeah, she was actually, yeah, and it wasn't very good. Oh. <laughs> I think she got a bit nervous and I told her it wasn't very good. Oh, my God. So it took quite a few years for them to get back on stuff. <laughs> that is just mean. And I, I mean, what it's is... It's truthful. <laughs> that's, well, that's up for debate, isn't it? I mean, what a success Pollen Street has been and still is. You've now opened a whole host of other restaurants this year alone has been extraordinary you hold multiple michelin stars and you're still in the kitchen as head chef pretty much every day i know that it shouldn't be but i think that's quite a rare thing isn't it i think it's um it's my thing right whether it's rare or not i, I you know for me it's, it's my thing it's important for me that i the minute i step back into london when i've been to visit the foreign restaurants i I, uh, I'm straight back at Pollen Street, right? I, I always say, judge me as a chef at Pollen Street and judge me as a restaurateur everywhere else. Okay. That's the, that's the absolute key message I send out to all the guidebooks, to all the customers. When they say, if they dine at City Social and say, oh, is it okay if Jason comes to see me? I say, I can't guarantee that because if you eat at Pollen Street, there's a good chance you'll see me. Um, if you eat a little social, maybe because I pop over the road, socially now is probably never because it's Paul Hood's restaurant and I just help him run it. Um, and that's how we do it, you know, and, and I think that's, I think being honest to people is really important and they can make their own decisions based on that. Sure. You know, I get a lot of, uh, requests for, uh, hotels to say, can we do a restaurant Jason Evans? And I said, well, a restaurant Jason Evans doesn't exist because it just doesn't exist because if, if the minute I put my name fully above the door, then I have to be, I have to be there. Yeah. You know, and I live in London. Pollen Street's the one I work out the most. So it's like if I put my name above any door, it'd be Pollen Street, but I still don't do that, right? Yeah. And obviously it's so important, but I do feel like a lot of chefs, when they get to sort of the top of the game, like you are, they're sort of, they take a step back from the kitchen or is that, am I wrong about that? Mm, no, I think, you know, you look at Sat Baines is in his kitchen lot, your Claude Boss is in his kitchen lot, Tom Carriage. I think our generation's different. So, mm, you know, we, yeah, that's true. we, we still engage with media. We still engage with book writing. We engage with, uh, brand, you know, brands and stuff like that. But ultimately we still push ourselves to be in the kitchen a lot. I think, I think you can see that in the good food guide, you know, yeah. um, you look at the good food guide or any of the guys, to be honest, the AA guide, Michelin, you see that, that level, how they've kicked on, you know, you don't, you know, I think it's, it's important to inspire the next generation to say that, well, that, that actually, if you want to maintain it, not just for three, four, five years, but if you want to maintain it for a lifetime, that's what it takes, I'm afraid, you know? Yeah, that's amazing to hear because I feel like in so many careers, the higher up the ladder you get, sort of whether it's law or banking or teaching, you kind of, you get further away from the thing that you were passionate about and sort of where your skills lie. So it's amazing to hear that. We're on to the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. Go-to dinner party dish would probably have to be, I can't eat enough of them. So Alex Krashen invented this. My my Japanese chef, who uh, was Romanian, but he's Japanese. Get your head around that one. <laughs> he he. We created a restaurant together, Shushar, which we're just in the, in the stages of moving into Mayfair at the moment. And he created this open tamaki. So... So we, when we created the menu together for Shishara, we talked about not doing sushi because I believe in London there's a lot of bad sushi. Mm -hmm. A lot of good sushi, but there's a lot of bad sushi. Yeah. And people now can go and buy it from Marks and Spencer's and just eat it for their lunch, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's very difficult with a, with a cuisine what's not native to the land to convince people the levels of quality. Mm -hmm. So you'll get customers who will come and go, well, why would I pay £30 for this sushi, even though it's amazing sushi? Yeah. Uh, when I can get it from Marks and Spencer's for two fifty, three quid or whatever it is, yeah. right? It's a massive gap to get right. 
So we said when we create sushi, we we would want sushi rice on the menu, but in a different form. Okay. So we created a thing called an open tamaki. So where we take nori uh, seaweed, really high quality nori seaweed, we toast it on the on the rabata grill. We then, uh, or you can just do it in a, in a, a hard uh, frying pan. As long as you get heat into it, you then tempura it so it goes like a taco. Okay. We fill it with sushi rice. Yeah. And then the sushi grade chopped fish on top, uh, avocado, spicy mayonnaise on top, and then tiny little crispy garlic and tiny little herbs. And people just go crazy for them. There's not everybody from like A-listers right down to like, you know, just guys who coming off the street just go nuts for them. I mean, that sounds incredible. Yeah, it's but just super Is that delicious. something that you would make at home? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, because you so put one you... for dinner parties, people get mad. Oh my god! I can. You'll have people queuing up to have a dinner party at yours now. Yeah, I do. <laughs> and would you would you make a pudding? Yeah, puddings. Um, it depends on what it is, but we're huge fans, and I've got my wife addicted to them now. Is the the British sponge puddings? Okay. So like we love we love those with like treacle on top or sticky top. So good. And yeah, they're so good. Yeah. Well, so, so this bad, is the so season good. for it. Yeah, so bad, so mm. good. That's a very accurate description. So I have to ask. I read in an interview you were asked about your dream dinner party guest, and you said Margaret Thatcher. Mm-mm. And I wondered what would you cook her? What would I cook, uh, Maggie? Would probably be. I'd probably stick it traditionally British because I think she's everything what we what we know is traditional British. I would like to do, I think oh, I do an incredible pork pie. So I'd like to give her a really amazing pork pie with piccadilly to start, and then for for main course, I'd probably do we do a really great beef Wellington at, at Berners Tavern on a Sunday. So I'd like to do a beef Wellington, and then for dessert, I'd do our flame in Alaska. Oh, I think I lucky think Maggie. I think she'd like that. <laughs> And let's talk about the book, because is this your first? First proper college? restaurant book. Yeah. I've okay. never done a restaurant book before. Yeah. And it's beautiful. What was the process of writing it like? It took two years. Okay. Um, so we got we got to a point where we felt ready that after 32 years in the kitchen that I felt ready to share my journey with younger cooks. Yeah. And well, anybody in the industry really, and anybody who, at home who wants to buy such a beautiful book. and. I was very lucky to be supported by John Croft and Bloomsbury at Absolute Bloomsbury. And, and we spoke about what would on the street social, the cookbook look like. And I said, well, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be sensational. Otherwise I'm not interested in writing it. If it's yeah. not, if it's nothing short of sensational, then there's no point because I don't need to write another cookbook. I'm not, you know, I'm not a cookery writer. I'm a chef and, and I've done enough home books now, right? Um, that I don't really need to write another collection of recipes for people at home. Yeah. So this is 80 of your favorite Pollen Street recipes, Absolutely, yeah. It? And it's the evolution of the restaurant, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, this is a hard question, but is there a favorite recipe um, in there? There's quite a few, but probably the John Dory with the John Dory with truffle and uh, chicken sauce, because I just think it's a crossover of meat and fish, and it's interesting, and the truffle, and it's very decadent, but it's also very, very delicious. We always put it on in, like, December until, like, March. Okay, See you here. <laughs> and in everything that I was researching about you, you were talking about how the end of the year was going to be very exciting. And what you were referring to was your new TV show, which sounds so exciting. I know we've touched on it a little bit, but tell us a bit more, like what's the premise of the show? So it's called, it's going to be called The Brigade. BBC Two goes out nine till 10, comes out March. Okay. And it's basically, how do you cope taking 10 young chefs who've never worked at uh, a super high level around Europe to in- totally engross themselves in food. You know, and we visit incredible locations all over Europe, teaching them 
everything from foraging to breaking down wild animals to, you know, to, to a million. And they have to live together. Uh, they have to um, converse. They have to have in-depth conversations. And it's like trying to get them off social media, keep them away from all that and just completely immerse them in the food world and to see how that reacts. And then they have one-on-ones with me. They have, I, they have class training. They have, you know, and I push them as hard as I can push them, like as if I was pushing this kitchen, they get pushed. And a lot of them don't like to be pushed, so it's quite interesting how they react. And then at the end of every week, they compete against a really great local restaurant. I train them on the particular dishes that chef wants to cook. So he cooks in, he or she cooks in their own restaurant, and then the critics judge that food, and then we go in the following day, we take over the kitchen for a day, and we also cook for the same judges for the same food, and then they get scored. But the show... Is not about win or lose. Okay. The show's about how far can they come and how much can they absorb and who really wants to be. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Who really wants to be a good chef? Who's really That's here amazing. for the real journey? Or are you just here because you want to be famous? Or you're and, here and can you here? kind of tell that? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's quite fascinating. So interesting. It's fascinating for me to be part of it. I mean, because I don't really do television. It's not my thing. Yeah. Um, they chose me because, you know, I'm very passionate about cooking at a high level, not dropping my standards. And I'm a difficult, I'm a difficult old sod to work with. You know, I, 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 <laughs> Are you a hard taskmaster? I am, unfortunately. It is what it is. I mean, you know, I'm not there to drop my standards to suit them. No. It's just not what it is about. I mean, you know, like some of them have found it very difficult to deal with me and some of them found it incredibly easy. And that's just how it is. You know, yeah. <laughs> and it is what it is. There's no, do you mean? We all knew what was getting into, and it's been a rocky ride for some and a, a really incredible journey for others, you know? Oh, I can't wait to watch. It sounds amazing. We have a cookbook corner on Desert Island Dishes, so I wondered if you have a cookbook collection at home, what's your sort of most treasured cookbook? Yeah. It takes us like a month to, to move house because I've got so many cookbooks. Oh, really? Have you got a lot? Yeah. I think the one that's most precious to me, because it's the one that started, I think, was a, a book called Dining in France by Gourmio which I still go back to today. It's got some incredible dishes in it. And it was 1985, 86, maybe when I bought this book. And I bought it from WH Smith's <laughs> on Skegness High Street. And I have no idea how it even got in there. Because I, <laughs> I look back to what Gourmio means today and why they ever believed anybody from Skegness would buy a book like that. I have no idea, but it was there and I bought it. It was a collection of recipes by some of the world's, uh, by some of uh, the great chefs of France, people like Pierre Gagnon just launched his career, Joel Robichon just launched his career, the Trois-Gros family, the Hamberlin family, I learned what later went to work for, Paul Bocuse, you name it, they're all in there. And um, Freddie Gerardet and, 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 and the lot. And I remember flicking through that and it was, the, it was the light switch, you know, the light switch moment everyone talks about in their careers where it was, and I just said to myself, I'm going to cook for the rest of my life. This is how I want to cook. Oh, how That's amazing. It. And you had that, and that was it. at such a young age. Mm-hmm. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. And that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Oh, it would probably be dinner at Brooklyn Fair. And a chef's table at Brooklyn Fair in New York. It's a Ooh. free mission star restaurant. Cesar Ramirez is one of the world's great chefs. And his tasting menu is just off the charts. And if you're going to get rid of me and stick me on a desert island with a coconut as a friend, yeah. <laughs> then that's what I want to... Uh, That's where I'd want to go. Okay, that sounds like a very good option. Thank you so much, Jason Atherton. Those are your Desert Island dishes. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. Don't forget you can find me on Instagram at Margie Nomura. 
If you're listening and you haven't yet left a review, please do as it really does give the show a little boost and you will make my day. Don't forget to go to the website desertislanddishes.co where you can sign up for the brand new newsletter. Plus there are lots of recipes and kitchen tips and tricks on there. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.